You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I want to study with you this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 4. So if you would turn your Bibles there, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll read from there in a moment. Now, um, I'm going to start by way of introduction by telling you about that time I got COVID. We all got COVID at some point, right? Well, for me, what happened was this. I had skated through the whole season of COVID and didn't get a thing. And there came this point where we were planning on going to the Dominican Republic. See where this is going, right? And we were uh, putting on a conference and meeting with different churches there. And it was an incredible week. We had a sweet time. And then, as would happen, you have to go get your COVID test before you get on the plane to go back to the United States. I took my COVID test, and Pastor Jose, who was with you guys here this past Friday, he took his COVID test, and he gets the email, and he pulls me aside, and he says, Jesse, I want to talk to you, and he says, I got your test, and it says you're positive. You can't go home. So what do you think he did? Did he stay there with me, or did he go back to Miami? He went back to Miami. (laughs) So here I am in the Dominican Republic, trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with COVID. I can't go back to my family. I'm there with a missionary friend, Jaime Blandon, and I'm literally just sitting in a chair for the next two weeks, just waiting to kind of get over this thing. And because I have this view and this sense of nothing happens for any, any small reason that the Lord is at work to accomplish his purposes, He's sovereign over all things. I begin asking the question, Lord, like, what are you, what are you doing in this moment in my life? Like, why, why am I here? Why am I sitting here? Like, what, in, in your grand plan of things, what's the point of this whole thing? And I thought, because I've been in Miami, um, and I have about uh, 3.5% of Spanish equivalency, okay, that I go, wait a second. I think what, one of the things the Lord is doing is he's left me here so that I can pick up Spanish. So I open up the Duolingo app, as we all have done at some point, I'm sure, and I just invest my time in Duolingo. And for two weeks, I did nothing else but just go through Duolingo, 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 Duolingo. And by the end of it, I think I had seen a video that said, learn Spanish in four weeks, which isn't possible, by the way. And I I had high expectations. I was going to go home speaking Spanish. And I left and I had, hola, como estas, está bien, e tu, biblioteca, right? Like that was, that was my, that was my Spanish. Like, okay, you know what? It was crazy to think that I might actually get there and learn Spanish in two weeks. You need more time, at least another two or three weeks. It so happened that in a few months, we were going to Colombia again. And so I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire a tutor. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. And I'm going to learn Spanish. So in three months, I'm going to go to Colombia. And guess what? 
me speaking Spanish. I met with a tutor. After three months, I go to Colombia and I go, hola, como estas, está bien, e tu, biblioteca. Which means, at one time, in faith, before the end, I may understand Spanish. But the point that, the thing that, the thing I'm reminded of through the midst of all this is that if we ever want to get anywhere, we need to train. In the DR, I sought to train. But after the DR, I sought to train. And so this morning, I've titled this sermon, and I will have a main idea, and the main idea is this. And this is really what I want to get at and pursue and study this morning, that as Christians, we bear the responsibility to train for godliness. And we are going to look in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and just explore that topic, explore that idea, read the scriptures and try to see what is the Lord teaching us and then how can we leave here today better seeking to train for godliness. Now, I've titled this sermon, Pumping Spiritual Iron, all right? So that's what we're doing. First Timothy chapter four, listen as I read. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life but then also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and we strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith. And purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
This book is called 1 Timothy because it's written um, by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And they have a special relationship. Uh, Paul is to Timothy something like an older man, a mature man investing himself into a younger man. We even kind of heard that as we're reading through the passage where he says, you know, don't let others look down upon you because of your age. Now, Paul is writing Timothy this letter when Timothy is in Ephesus. Ephesus is an old, ancient, important city that we have in the Middle East. It's in current current day Turkey. And I had a chance to go to Ephesus uh, a few years ago. We went on what's called a seven churches tour where we got to visit the seven different churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. And we went to all the different places, but the primary, like the, the, the top of the, chip, the trip was going to see Ephesus because Ephesus is amazing. It, it was like the center of society. It was this massive, beautiful, important city. And so we got to walk through the ruins. And I remember sitting where the Senate would sit when they would talk about government, all the different things. Walking down the streets and we visited this home of some very extremely wealthy, prominent person before and they had heating and running water, things that you would never anticipate that homes would have back in these ancient days, yet they had these things. We went to the bathhouses and they would see how they would kind of gather together there and do the things they would do and clean themselves and then, you know, enjoy themselves in that sense. We saw the theater We saw the library, but we also saw this section of the city as well where all the ancient temples were. And so you would kind of walk through and you would see a temple to this goddess or a temple to this god. And one of the things you would know if you knew anything about Ephesus is that Ephesus was a city about ideas. Everyone was going there and everyone's bringing all their ideas, all their philosophies to this city and Paul cared deeply about it. We get a glimpse of that, and I actually want to turn there with you in Acts 20. So if you would flip there with me. We have here recorded some some moments that happened in um, Paul's time here. We know that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. You can kind of think about what you think about Paul Paul's going around, he's investing time in different places and churches, at times only there for a moment and moving on. But when it came to Ephesus, Paul stayed there. So listen to this, chapter 20, verse 28, probably read through verse 30. We're gonna, yeah, verse 28. He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is Paul talking to the elders in Ephesus. Okay, so the context is he's about to leave. He's kind of giving them their last message. To do what? So pay careful attention to the flock, to the people, to the church. And with the the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders or pastors to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why? Verse 29, very interesting. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul's a guy who knows how to handle himself. He's a father-like figure. He's an apostle. He's a pastor. And when he's there, he has confidence 
that he's able to refute and rebuke false teaching. But he's worried about him leaving and what's gonna happen. And he knows that when he leaves, false teachers are going to come in. That's what happens. Verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We get a glimpse of the man Paul here gave himself when he would preach and teach and think about the church, he did it with tears, which means Paul really cared. Fast forward to 1 Timothy. What's happening here? Well, false teachers have come. So I'm gonna give you a first idea. We're gonna go through three ideas. Give you a first idea that I want us to look at our passage. The first idea is this. We need to train ourselves for godliness because mesmerizing myths derail faith. So hear that again if you're writing that down. We need to train ourselves for godliness because mesmerizing myths, I chose that word mesmerizing because we just don't fall into myths or fall into false thinking or teaching because it looks silly. We fall into it because it's attractive. It draws us in, it pulls us in, it mesmerizes our minds, and then it does this, and this is what Paul's getting at, it derails our faith. So in Paul's letter, he uses kind of multiple words to describe what in Acts 20 he was looking to, to that was gonna happen, and now in this moment he's actually looking back to what's already happened. And if you would look in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, we can see how he kind of begins his letter here. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. So the very thing that Paul was worried about is actually now happening in the, in the city of Ephesus and within the church. These fierce wolves that he, that he foresaw would come in have now come in. And how does he describe them? Look at the words he uses to describe in verse three and four. He, he says, they teach different doctrines. As a church, we want to be a church that is grounded and rooted in sound doctrine, good doctrine, but what are the things he's worrying them about? Different doctrines. Or he uses the word myths, right? Things that are untrue. And you get a glimpse of some of the things they're thinking about. They're kind of falling into these endless lists of genealogies. You know, all the genealogies we have in the Bible and the Old Testament. You can imagine how people can get very creative, just going very deep into these things and missing the whole point of the message of the gospel that Paul's proclaiming. In chapter four, how does he describe these things? In chapter four, he continues on. And he uses some interesting words because now he takes it a step further. And he's saying, hey, the spirit says that in latter times, these things would happen. People would devote themselves to what? Deceitful spirits. 
What is a false teaching? What is a myth that works itself into the life of the church? Deceitful spirits. He also calls them the teachings of demons. Oftentimes, we're not kind of quick to think about kind of demonic activity. But as you read through the scriptures, especially through the New Testament, and you see Jesus' ministry working itself out, one of the things that's absolutely clear is that there is a spiritual battle happening just beneath the surface, just beneath the things that are seen so that the teachings of demons are actually the things that are derailing the faith. They're demonic in origin. He says that in verse 2, these people are insincere, that they're liars, and that their consciences are seared. And then he kind of goes into what they're actually teaching. Now, the thing that they're teaching here is they're, they're teaching some sort of form of kind of relinquishing things, right? So they were saying, well, you should forbid marriage or you should not eat these certain foods. I think one of the marks here that we understand uh, about that kind of marks false teaching oftentimes is that it's not like a direct attack on the gospel, but it's kind of like some sort of Jesus-adjacent or gospel-adjacent teaching that is kind of infiltrating the church. It might be things that kind of sound right, but at the end of the day, aren't fully right. And so as Christians, we have a concept of fasting or kind of setting things aside for a season, right? So that we could... Uh, kind of grow in godliness or understand our attachment to these things. But then these other people would come in, they would say, no, 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 these things, these ideas that you've been hearing, I'm gonna double down on them and now I'm gonna say, this is what the gospel is about. So then rather than teaching the person of Jesus as kind of like the point of what our faith is about, they start teaching some sort of sub ideas and they say, this is what our faith is about. So if you as an individual want to develop and grow spiritual, you want to reach some sort of spiritual heights, then what you need to do, don't marry like everyone else marries. A real man for Christ, a real woman for Christ would actually forego marriage altogether because the holiest thing you can do is just step away from that. Or you're enjoying all these different foods in life. So if you want to reach the pinnacle of what Christianity and fame is, forgo all these different things, have this particular diet, and if you do, you are practicing what would be real spiritual religion and faith. And what Paul is saying, and he's teaching this to Timothy, is that no, this is wrong because it's diverting itself from the message of Jesus. So we can say this, and this, I think this would be a key idea. A gospel-adjacent message is not the gospel message. And so we can kind of look throughout American Christianity, and we can glimpse and see a lot of gospel-adjacent messages. Messages that we might call right now that might be very identifiable for us as the prosperity gospel. There's glimpses of truth. Things sound right. Man, the Lord loves you and he wants to give you all the things that your heart desires. 
And so if you're walking purely in the faith and being as adamant as you can in the faith, then the Lord will bless you financially, right? Some of the messages and the teachings that happen. And we would say, listen, just because they use some language we understand, just because it kind of sounds right and good at times, doesn't mean it is the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel is centered on Christ himself. So if there's some sort of aberrant teaching that's kind of drawing you away from the person of Jesus, then you know that you're being tempted and pursued and drawn away by something that Paul would call a myth. Yeah. I'll give you one example, and we'll move on. I was reading the screw tape letters. We've heard the screw tape letters. Some of us have. It's kind of an f- interesting book. It's a book written by C.S. Lewis. And in the book, what he does is he's trying to take seriously this idea that, that demonic activity is real and that Satan literally is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he can devour. And so he imagines a conversation between a uncle demon and something of like a nephew demon, looking to kind of persuade and draw an individual away. And you would think the whole message would be, you know, hey, trying to encourage them that Jesus isn't real and encourage them into atheism and encourage them to just stop believing altogether. But as Lewis writes the book, that's not the tactic that he has in mind. The tactic he has in mind is that it's better to let someone kind of fall into a cultural religion than to find an actual religion. So in this particular moment of something I want to read to you, uh, they're talking about the topic of prayer. And in this moment, the uncle demon is trying to encourage the younger demon how to encourage this individual how to think about prayer in a way that would best kind of draw him away from the true gospel. And this is what Lewis says. So this is written from the perspective of a demon to another demon. I've known many cases, and he calls the Christians patients, right? I've known many cases when the patient called his God, or what the patient called his God, was actually located up and to the left of the corner of the bedroom ceiling. So when he would pray, he wouldn't pray to God himself, but rather he would pray to an object or inside of his own head or the crucifix on a wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, youngest, keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. And so as we're thinking about what does it mean for us to grow and develop in godliness, it's to make sure that these side aberrant ideologies or myths that Paul would call it, whether they're inside the church or outside the church, would not be the thing that we're distracted to, but rather we would keep our eyes on the person of Christ himself. I want to identify these things in my life. I want to rid these things in my life and not kind of be enticed by them. Jesus focused. I have a second idea I want to share with you. We need to train ourselves for godliness like an athlete for a competition. 
So if you're writing that down, hear that again. We need to train ourselves for godliness like an athlete trains for a competition. So look here in verses 6 through 10. You'll notice that Paul uses this word train or trained three times. In verse 6, you'll be good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of faith. In verse 7, rather, train yourself for godliness. In verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So he uses this word train to describe the way that we should pursue godliness. Now, in our own English language, if I were to say, hey, I'm training for something, your mind might likely go to some physical activity. Um, training for the Olympics, anyone believe that? Not for a second, okay. I'm training for a Spartan race. Or I'm training for a half marathon. And if I were to use this language and say, okay, I'm training for this, then you have an idea of what I'm doing. I'm having early mornings. I'm going to the track. Potentially, I'm lifting weights. I'm doing a lot of physical preparation exercise so that at some point, I would be ready for this event. Now, the same is true in the Greek language as well. And in fact, this word train has a little bit of a odd etymology or odd history. And it comes from this Greek word that we could pronounce as gumnos. And eventually, this word train, gumnos, is the word where we get our word gymnasium from. Okay, so you can kind of see the attachment to these ideas. Now, small excursus, then we'll come back, all right? The word train literally means um, the word nude or naked. And the reason why this word is associated so closely with training is because in the early Greek times, when the Greeks would come together and they would form themselves into gymnasiums, they would gather together and train and compete in the nude. And so to, to train literally meant, in the Greek word, to exercise in the nude, which is bizarre. And I'm sorry to give you those associations that now you have, now have in your mind, all right? But the point is this, is that that word from Greek times that has associations to the gymnasiums, that has associations to the Olympics, travels itself through history to the point where Paul is writing a letter to Timothy and then he grabs that idea. Train. Train yourself for godliness. Kent Hughes who is a, uh, a godly man. He writes good books. He wrote a famous book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's a really good book. And he's writing about this word and he sums up this word this way. This word comes with the smell of the gym in it, the sweat of a good workout. And so when Paul says, train yourself for godliness, what he's saying is train yourselves exercise, work out, right, physical things for the purpose of godliness. I think that's what Paul's getting at. 
And so when we think about our own spiritual development, it's healthy, and in fact, even biblical, to think about these things in the context of physical exercise. If you would train your body for a physical event, train yourself in the glory and the goodness of God and godliness. And he takes this even a step further. Look here in verse eight. So um, in verse seven, right? So we're saying reject irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then we can ask the question, why? Like, why should I do that? And in verse eight, he says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this life and the life to come. In May, I turned 40, okay? And I was 39 and now I'm 40, okay? And if you're not yet 40, things happen, okay? If you're after 40, you know all about it. Okay, some things that have happened. I have not worn glasses until recently. My eyesight has taken the bright line to Orlando. All right, probably wrecked on the way as well. Wait, it's a thing. So some of the guys in our group, we started saying, okay, let's get together. Some of the guys in my small group, we started meeting on Saturdays and we started lifting weights. It was beautiful. It, pr- it probably looks like some Olympic event, I promise you, all right? And we're getting very excited. There's a lot of like good fellowship happening and weights being lost and you're feeling good. And then at some point in the midst of kind of like months of this happening within small group and we're all kind of doing this, enjoying our time together, the Lord brings me to verse eight of chapter four in 1 Timothy. And he says, for while, while bodily training is of some value, and I thought to myself, I'm spending a lot of time doing something that the Bible says is of some value. As comparison to other things I should do and pursue that has ultimate value. Now, he doesn't say it's valueless. So, This is not to say, if you go to the gym, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be fat and happy like me, okay? Not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we need to kind of see physical training in the context that the Bible sees physical training. Because what's often happening in the world and in our own lives and in our churches is that we have these things flipped a bit. We spend a lot of time pursuing physical growth. And that could be physical, like strength and strong and our heart health. Or it could be you just getting better at your job. Personal development. I'm reading books on how to be a better leader. Or I just want to entertain myself, so I'm spending a lot of time just kind of pursuing entertaining my mind because that's where I find value. But All the work we're doing is kind of putting all of our chips in this temporal, bodily category. And then over here, when we think of eternal, everlasting, soul-type things, they're kind of diminished. And so it's to ask yourself, like just right now, take a moment to think. 
how much of my time and my life am I spending doing something the Bible calls of some value? How much of my time am I spending doing something the Bible would, would call of great, ultimate, eternal value? And if they are lopsided like they likely are, then, it's, then maybe it's that we've made the mistake of verses one through five, and there's something we're believing that's untrue. There's some sort of myth or some sort of aberrant teaching that we've bought into to believe that the thing we should be living our lives for is not Christ himself, but something else. But we know because we believe in Jesus and we trust him that the thing and the focus of our lives needs to be this eternal thing, not this temporal thing. So why is bodily value of some value? I'm, I'm sorry, bodily training of some value? Because it helps you, right? My kids, I can pick them up. Even as they get bigger and bigger, I'm still trying to pick them up. Right? That's, that's of some value. That's a good thing. But why is pursuing godliness better? Paul says this. And he says this, look here in verse, the backside of verse eight. Godliness is a value in every way. Why, you may ask, it holds promise for the present life. It's going to grow you now. But listen to this, and also for the life to come. Perhaps one of the reasons why we are not so encouraged or natural about training in godliness is because we're not fully convinced about this life to come. One of the things that I constantly need to remind myself of, one of the things I think that we need to be reminded of as well is that this is not it. This, this thing that we have, we were given 75, 80 years, if you're from my family, about 48 or 50 years, okay? I don't have a good history going on, right? We're given this moment of time, and then after that, we know that our bodies give out and they die. So we're not gonna spend our time investing in this vessel, but rather we're spending our time investing in the eternal reality that though our bodies are dying, Christ has come to save, redeem, restore, and bring back. And so, invest your time and your mind and your efforts there. What does that mean? That means that we learn to love the things the Lord means. I think we find the answer in verse six. It says, being trained in what? The words of the faith and of good doctrine. I want to understand the gospel. I want to understand the message of the Bible. I want to understand how all the pieces work together. One of the ways that we do this as Christians is we learn to grow in the habit of prayer. We learn to grow in the discipline of reading the scriptures in the Bible. We learn to grow in the discipline of gathering together in church and doing this together, not just separate. So it's not individualized Christianity, but it's a together Christianity. And finally, a third idea I wanna share with you is this. We need to teach others to train for godliness too. Interesting. So the first idea was this. 
If you allow yourself, allow yourself to be taken in by mesmerizing myths, it's going to derail your faith because you're putting your faith in the wrong thing. Number two, pursue this like an athlete pursues an event. But three, Paul transitions here from, hey, Timothy, you train, to using the word teach. So the word in verses six through 10, that is the prominent word there for me, is the word train. We highlighted them. Now in verses 11 through 16, it's the word teach. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to what? The public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to what? To teaching. So that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and what? On your teaching. It's interesting to me that Paul goes here with this because what he's doing is he's, is he's showing, hey, this thing is something good for you but it's also something good for your neighbors and your friends. Now, this is a very kind of anti-American way of thinking about these things. Because in America, we have this idea, don't bother me and what? I won't bother you, okay? Or we have another way of saying it. We say, you do you, right? And the point is, hey, you have your own thing going on over there. I got my own thing going on over here. And as long as there's like enough distance, we're good. The famous poem, what does it say? Um, good fences make good neighbors, right? Like let's just, a clean line of separation. By the way, for some reason, it actually seems to work out. Good fences do make good neighbors, okay. But it's not just about, it's not just about kind of this me and Jesus type religion, it's that we would do this as a community. Now, our world would tell us that, hey, you need to stay on your side, I need to stay on my side, and if we do, we're kind of good. But Christianity is a telling religion, telling-religion in the sense that we are burdened and we are commissioned to tell other people about it. So in the scriptures, we remember what we have with Jesus. He leaves us with what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so it's not just something simply that we receive and have, it's something we give. If you think of Christianity as something between you and YouTube, you're thinking of it wrong. Because Christianity finds context within a local church with other people so that you can teach and others can teach you as well, obviously within the context of a local church. One other observation before we come to a close. The teaching is connected with example. So if you were to go through verses 11 through 16, you're gonna find this pattern. Paul is gonna tell Timothy to teach and then he's gonna tell Timothy to lead with an example. Verse 11 Command and teach these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you for youth, but what? Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. We don't teach things we don't believe. We teach things we put into practice. Perhaps why it's important that we have six through 10 before we have verses 11 through 16, because we need to train ourselves first. 
Verse 13, what does it say? Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Okay, right? So teach. Verse 14, what does he do? Do not neglect the gift you have, which are given by prophecy and the elders that laid hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things. So teach, practice. Immerse yourself in them so that, you, so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, the, the, the same pattern. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. What happens next? Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Friends, a challenge is before us this morning. And the challenge would be that we would not see our Christianity and our faith as something that is an addition to our lives, something that's like a good book that really kind of helps me navigate through difficult times and moments, but I also have baseball on Saturdays. No, it is the thing we are meant to guide and pursue and invest our lives in and to say it the way Paul says it, that we would train ourselves for godliness, that we would be about the Great Commission. Rather, we would be about the message of Christ, the message that though we were sinful, though we were broken before him, that he, in fact, sent his son Christ, that rather than us being condemned because the Lord is a good judge, we would have the words of Romans 8, 1 before us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So what is the message we are kind of training ourselves in? This message of freedom and forgiveness. Friends, I love you. I thank you. And I pray that we would all, both here at Grace and in Providence Road, and at one day in our city, see this take more and more shape. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.